It's great to have a guest with us today, and glad that you're here. We have people from all over the country actually are with us today. So it'll be nice to have a gathering here in a few minutes where we'll get to worship together. But here in this hour, before we get to our worship service, we'd like to go back into this letter that was written by John to some of the very first churches over in Asia Minor. And for the next hour, we get to connect with these brothers and sisters who, 2,000 years ago, would have picked up this very same letter and heard these very same words that you are about to hear. Now, we can't read the whole letter today, but we're going to be looking mostly at chapters uh, 1 and 2. Um, but we talked about last week, there comes the volume, we talked last week about uh, reading through First John, and because it's a letter, you'll hear us say lots of times and maybe too many times, letters are meant to be read start to finish, all the way through. Uh, for those of you that had a chance to either read through First John or listen to it, maybe somebody else read it, uh, what, uh, what stood out to you this week? Remember last week we talked about how the letter of First John is a little different than the letters you might read from Paul or Peter or some of the others in that other letters tend to have more of a uh, teaching uh, uh, mode uh, called a deliberative mode, where the writer is trying to convince you of something, trying to persuade you. Or they'll take more of a forensic mode, where they're trying to make an argument. But John's letter is written in what's called a demonstrative mode. You don't have to remember that word, but it just means to demonstrate something. Uh, John is writing in a way so as to just display something that you already know. But because you're able to see in this letter something you already know, uh, it, it comes across as encouraging. It's, uh, it's reminding you of something amazing, and he's inviting you to remember something so that you will uh, do something new. So for those of you that read, what did you see demonstrated in 1 John? What, what did you see on display? Did anybody read or have reflections? Yes. Good. Yeah, so all the way through chapter 4, you just keep seeing this word, love, all over. Yeah, great. Yeah, and that was by far the word that came up the most. Uh, when you do a word study in First John, that word Did came you? up more times than any other word. Yeah, and, and we've talked about that too, that anytime you're studying a letter, one of the very first things to do is look for common words and phrases. And if a word is repeated lots of times, it means it is on display. <laughs> Pay attention, this is a major theme. Good, so love stood out. What else? So you caught that. Love each yeah. other, love each other, love each other. Good. Tracy. Good. Yeah, so Tracy really brings out that one of the things you see in John is this clear distinction between, as you say, us and the world, or the way John would say that, the children of God and the children of the devil. And there's this clear distinction between those two. Oh, that's going to be a scary passage when we get to that, yeah. That even here, no, you're exactly right, that... 
that just well, she said it first, so we're okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and part of that, I think we're actually going to get to today. Pay attention to those if statements because there's five of them: three negative, two positive. That uh, you're going to see just jump out of the passage today. Thanks for highlighting that. That's right. It's, it's as if you are listening to, and I think Stephen, you had said this last week, uh, one of the oldest Christians alive at the time say there's ways to test whether or not this is true or not. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Good. Good. So uh, Tony reminds us it's a book of action and you see that what you believe in 1 John leads to action towards one another. Yeah, excellent. Well, you're catching these themes and you're seeing that John just puts these on display for us and you're meant to see them but then to take time and reflect on them. And if you do, you will never get to the bottom of this well when you pause to reflect whether you look at one line at a time or one subject at a time or one passage at a time. John uses some of the most simple language in the ancient Greek world to convey some of the most profound theological concepts, which is what makes it both a beautiful book, but sometimes a little bit hard, you know, to, to follow. Well, here's what I'd like to call your attention to, and we'll just start here this week, is actually start at the end of the book to say, as you read through the letter, your target is to get to the end where he says, there are six things that you can absolutely know. And let me just list them this week, and then you'll notice how each week what we talk about will point to one or maybe several of these things. But in chapter 5, as you get to the end, you'll recognize that John, and I'll put this on the screen so you can see this, says there's six things that you can know. The first is from 5.13, where he says, you can know that you have eternal life. Those of you who believe in his name, you can absolutely know that. The second thing you can know is that he hears you. And not only does he hear you, you can have this confidence that whatever you ask, you will have if you ask according to his will. So all of these have qualifiers, but there's three things you can know. You have eternal life. He, the creator of the universe, hears you. And three, whatever you ask of him, you have. And then number four is you can know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. There's something about being born of God that arrests this human nature process to keep on sinning. Another thing that you can know is that you are from God. That's to Tracy's point. You are from God, but you're living in a world that is under the power of the evil one. And then the final thing that you can know, 520, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that you can absolutely know him. So not just knowing information. The thing that John is pointing to in the end is that you can know him, meaning the only true God, Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why he ends with, Patty, you pointed this out last week, that's why he ends with this strange statement, keep yourself from anything false. You can know the real creator of the universe. Well, that's where John is pointing us. 
This week, our theme is actually going to come from chapter 2. Well, and just to highlight one, briefly, one. Yeah. all those things that you are told that you can know, they sound real simple at first read, but they're not that simple. <laughs> not at all. They, there's, a lot, there's a lot of depth behind that and a lot of difficulty, I think, in understanding, but that's the beauty of John, is that he's not, he's not telling you something new. He's telling you something old, yeah. um, so it makes you want to go back and figure out what he's talking about. Yeah. And speaking about going back, we talked about this last week, the letter of 1 John begins in the beginning, that which was from the beginning. And uh, this week we'd like to focus in on the theme from the beginning of light. And so what uh, Tim and I will do is we'd like to read through the first two chapters of 1 John. This will just take a moment to do. But let's read through this together. I'll have it on the screen if you'd like to follow there. If you'd like to just close your eyes and hear it being read, that's good. Uh, If it's helpful for you to follow as you read along in your text, read along. But absorb it. Uh, uh, Allow the words here to, to wash over you as we read. But if you would, be paying attention to the references that you see in these first two chapters to the very beginning, meaning Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And so allow your mind, as you're listening to this, to see those little places where John will put on display things that you have known literally from the beginning of the beginning. And then that will be one of our main questions and one of the things we'll talk about is, what do you see displayed here that comes from, that comes from Genesis? So starting first John, and maybe we'll just go back and forth on the paragraphs I'll let you start. John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we were writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I... I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And that is not the end of the letter, and you feel like it's cheating if I stop <laughs> right there. And I am, because it goes on. But that's a package for us to, to take some time, meditate on, and reflect on what is, what is John passing on to us here that we can apply today. But let's go back to the beginning and just begin with what... Uh, what stood out to you that you recognize is from the beginning? Allusions to the uh, the opening story of Genesis. Did anything stand out? Ah, good. So Tony says he, he goes be, before the beginning. Yeah. Because he mentions eternal life. That idea that life goes back, is that what you're saying? Not just, it's not something that just started and then goes on. It's something that he brought into existence. What else? Mike? Yeah. Yeah, so you saw on display there, Jesus is from... 
Yeah, good. Yeah, it's not that Jesus just showed up in, you know, 0 AD, or I guess it'd be 4 BCE, depending on how you do the dating. That Jesus is here from the beginning with the Father. Yeah. What else? We had a little bit of fun with this yesterday, and I, this is probably not theologically sound, but you saw him talking about commandments that come, you know, you've heard this from the beginning and obey God's commands, and we, we start saying, well, when, what, 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 what command is he referring to there? <laughs> and you can't land on one, so I don't want to get too sidetracked there, but we just started going back in time, saying, okay, going back, when do we get to, you know, past the new commandment, the old commandments? You know, you get through the Ten Commandments eventually back there. And we thought, wait a minute. God actually gave commandments before the Ten Commandments. And so we turn back there to Genesis 1. Uh, The first time God actually, or the first time the text actually uses the word command is when God commanded them to eat. He didn't command them just not to eat. He commanded them to eat of all the trees that I give you. But the flip side of that was there's one tree of which you're not allowed to eat. That was the very first time we see the word command. But that wasn't God's first command. The commands that God gives to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. That was a command God gave. But you know, that's not the first time that God gives uh, in Hebrew this word, which means God said, God spoke. That word can also mean command. Do you know the very first command God gives? The first time we ever see in Scripture, it stated that God said and the command was carried out. Do you remember the very first command? Exactly. God said, let there be light. In Hebrew, it actually says, uh, God said, light exist. And existed light. (laughs) If you wanted to do a literal translation of that. Uh, That's the very first command. Did you see John referring to light in this passage? Yeah. God is light. So we thought what would be helpful is, let's go back to Genesis well, can we take a can we take it a little divergent? We absolutely can. Um, so I think before you do a recap of Genesis briefly, I think it might help to better understand what the word light means. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, uh, depending on you know your perspective of Genesis, I think a lot of them are intuitively you think light and you think visible light. Um, but before we go down any way of redefining that word, I think it's easier if you let scriptures define the word. Um, and so we did a little word search on the word light that's used in Hebrews or in Genesis 1. Um, it is not the word light that you will see every time translated in English. It's only used uh, about 100 times in the Old Testament. And what surprised me was the times in which it shows up. Uh, I kind of intuitively thought, oh, it'll probably show up in, in Psalms. David's going to reflect on it. I bet you'll see it in the, in the prophets. Um, but where it showed up dramatically the most was in Job. Um, Job reflects on this contrast between light and darkness uh, several times. And so can I, yeah, because as we get into this, I'm thinking of light whenever I hear that word. I'm thinking of photons. I'm thinking of, okay, I see visible light here. If I'm really thoughtful, I'll think we're surrounded by light waves that are empowering our cell or allow for communication on cellular phones or even listening to the radio. All of that is light. But we're going to go to Scripture to find out what does the what do the writers of Scripture mean when they use this term. Correct. That's where we're going. Yes. Okay. Um, and and I don't and by I don't think it means I don't think it doesn't necessarily also mean that. Yeah. It just has a plethora of meaning. 
but just looking at what the scriptures say, it's just interesting to see how they reflect on this. Uh, and the very first one, I go to Genesis 1, verse 5, just two, passage, just two verses later, when he calls the light day. Uh, and but intuitively, I think I always assume that was just the daytime when the light exists, but he's giving light a, a timeline. He's, he's turning it into something historical because that same word day they'll use later in the scriptures to refer to you know the day something occurred, a moment in time, a moment in history. So just right off the bat, it instantly you start seeing different paradigms and different definitions of this word light being more than just physical, visible spectrum. Um, and then just quickly touching on a few in Job, um, uh, Job 26.10, it says, he, was in, he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And the, and the reflection on the word circle is a reflection back on creation, the circle being the land that emerged out of the waters. And then we're being told somehow there's a link between the land being light and then the waters being darkness. So again, it's, it's, it keeps breaking down this understanding of visible light, and there's something else going on here. Uh, Job 18.18, 18, it says, He, referring to the wicked, is driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. Um, so now you get a depiction that if you're not in light, you're in a place that's not even habitable. You can't exist in this place where light is not at. Um, Job 24.16 it says, in the darkness, they dig into houses. They shut themselves up by day. They do not know the light. And so now light is something that you can know, that you can have some sort of relationship with, that you can experience um, beyond heat and visible light, but it's something that you can interact with and have an experience with. Um, and also note that the same darkness we're told about in Genesis 1 is the same darkness word that comes up in Job almost all the time um, to compare these two light and darkness from, again, creation. Um, some of the other ones, Job uh, 38, this is a good one, 38, 12 through 15. Uh, he says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and made the dawn know its place? so that it would take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked would be shaken off from it. It is chains like clay under the seal and, the stand, and they stand out like a garment. Their light is withheld from the wicked and the uplifted arm is broken. And so now somehow you're getting a, a depiction that the morning dawn can shake the earth of the wicked. Um, and, that, and that somehow as the dawn comes upon, you know, over the horizon, it doesn't shine on the wicked either. It's like it picks and chooses uh, who it shares its light with. So now there's an intelligence uh, behind this light, and it gets to almost uh, make its own decisions to some degree, or something's telling it what to do. Uh, and then, of course, there's some great ones in Psalms. Um, Psalms uh, 112.4 Light shines in the darkness for the upright and then immediately links light with he is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. So now light has characteristics of the Holy Spirit and of the characteristics of God. Um, and then with Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The exact same light which God commanded in the beginning. Um, and then... Psalms 36, 9, for the fountain of life is with you. In your light, we see light. So now you, got, you, need, you need some other light in order to see light. So you got duplicate lights. You got a lot of light going on. Um, I don't know how many more you want to go through. but Let's we do Isaiah 60. Let's show that one. Isaiah 60. I'll let you I'll read I'll just yours. do the first one. 
It was just that Isaiah 61, you, this will be a familiar passage to many. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then at the very end of, isn't it the end of 60, when he um, comes back to that idea yeah, you have Isaiah 60 is paired almost verbatim with Revelations 22 when he talks about, um, uh, but you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and your God as your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and the days of your morning will be over. And then compare that with Revelations 22 where he says, and there will no longer be any night. And there will no, they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. So I was just thinking through, you know, in that Hebrew writing, how they'll use parallelism to tell you what words mean up in this Isaiah 60 is where he takes this idea of light being a condition. But then he also pairs that with glory. And so throughout that Isaiah 60 is that when we talk about God's glory, we were also talking about this condition of God's light being present. Well, that's an overview of... Well, and so, yeah, if you light. take all of that and then you go back to Genesis and read it again, it reads entirely differently. Um, it really breaks you out of, oh, well, this is how we argue creationism. This is how we combat evolutionists. I mean, they would have had no concept of that, uh, the ancient Israelites. Um, this isn't their way of claiming this is where matter comes from. This is their way of claiming why God is the God of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's... And then, and then again... The key, and this was in John 2 and some of the commentaries we were reading when we did that, they keep associating, at least it helps for me in my understanding, when you see the word light, you think of life. Um, that they go hand in hand. And you could even tag on to that love as well. They all are intermixed um, in their definitions. Yeah. So let's go, back, let's go back to Genesis. And eventually this is going to take us back to First John. But let's think for a minute about what that was like in the beginning for human beings to walk in God's light. Remember John used that phrase, walk in the light as he is in the light. Let's go back to the beginning and just imagine for a minute what that was like for those first human beings. And so let's go through the, just kind of a quick review of Genesis 1 through 4. Yeah, it's supposed to be a five-minute review, and I think I had eight pages. So uh, too, too many words. So to do it quickly without cheating. Um, so Genesis 1, 1 through 4 is a fascinating study if you've ever spent any time in it. There's so many rabbit holes you can go down and different things you can explore. Um, but even just the very beginning, um, especially if you're coming at it from a... And there's lots of ways you can approach it, uh, but it certainly broke down some patterns for me. When you first enter Genesis 1, you're introduced to a world already existed. You see this world that is, is, is wild and waste, uh, that's devoid of form, uh, that's chaotic. It has waters over it already. Um, and so immediately you're, you're sort of decoupled from this is an account of matter being created and there's something else happening here. Um, and so you, a lot of times uh, as you read through the Old Testament, the, Israelites, or the ancient Israelite authors will spend a lot of time referring to things that are related to death or chaos or destruction and they'll tie it back to pre-creation chaotic waters. That's the imagery that they use for nothingness, uh, for darkness, for despair. Uh, David will talk about it a lot, the waves crashing over him. Um, and so then when you get to, when you're in Genesis and you see all of a sudden, 
you know, you have this like uninhabitable darkness and destruction and God just sort of walks in and says, let there be light and boom, now there's this environment and this capacity for life to exist and inhabit. Um, and then he goes on and he brings order to the chaos. Um, if you look at the days of creation and you compare one through three with four through six, you'll notice one through three is God ordering the cosmos. You know, he says, let there be light so that, you know, think of, a, think of something that can exist without light. I'm not sure if there is, but most everything needs some form of light to have life. And then you get to day two, and he separates the waters. Uh, and the best analogy I know for this is like a snow globe. Um, imagine, you know, if the pre-creation state is this chaotic waters everywhere, God sort of puts a void in the middle of it, separates it, and allows this space to exist for humans and for life and for animals and for creation to have a place where they're not crushed by the waters, which is then a fascinating uh, cross-reference to Noah uh, and what's going on there, but that's a different time. Um, and then day three, you see land emerge because we weren't meant to live in the waters. Uh, not necessarily the physical waters, which is true, but also the chaotic waters. We're not meant to live there. So God gives a firm foundation, a firm firmament, uh, so that we have a place to set our feet upon and stand and to exist. And then days four through six, then he methodically goes through and starts populating the inhabitants of these places. Um, so day four, he puts in the fish and the birds so that they, one fills the waters, the other fills the air or the rakia, which is the dome above us that protects the waters from crashing back in. And then day five, he gives, uh, I'm already lost. Nope, day four, he didn't do birds. So I'm getting them backwards now. No, the three and then four was the, suddenly we have lamps. Oh, yes, I forgot just, about the lamps. Yeah. Yes, yeah, the heavenly hosts are put into the skies uh, to govern this light which he just made. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, day four, you have the birds in the rakia or in the sky dome. You have the fish in the sea. Day six, you get animals that are existing. And then you also get this extra animal that's made, uh, this extra creation that's made in humanity. Um, and they get like an extra dose of blessing because they're made in the image of God to reflect his uh, personality, his characteristics, his rule. Um, which then, you know, going back to First John, don't make other idols. I mean, humanity was made as the very first idol, if you will. You are the image of God, the image of the Most High, and you're to be the image bearer into the world, uh, to reflect his will and his want, and that's why we were made to reign over the birds, over the fish, over the cattle, over the crawling things, because you are God's emissary uh, in this world. And then the first problem that God has to solve is those image bearers were alone. I mean, there was only one. So he had to solve the alone problem. Yeah, so when you get to yeah, he brings all the animals to Adam, says, hey, find a mate that's suitable for you, and which is kind of comical because I'm not sure what really was meant by that, but he doesn't find anything. And so God then, he takes Adam and he splits him right down the middle. He cuts him in half, 50-50, because what was the one Adam uh, becomes the two. And so you get male and female, and that's why you, you, know, you get this then weird reference to marriage, but it's not weird in the context of you were split in two so that you would recombine again and be one. Uh, which is a play on then God the Father and God the Son, mm-hmm. how they are one, but they are two. Um, and so, again, by splitting in two, you now become even more like the image of God because he is one but many. Um, so is that where we see the introduction of this idea of fellowship, the idea that a group can be one but not alone? I, I think that's where it comes from in the beginning because yeah. um, it's been that way. So that, that was how God originally intended it to occur. Um, so yeah, that's the pattern that we see, um, and that's the the mold we're supposed to follow. Which, 
That's why John spent so much time, or one reason I would assume he spent so much time talking about loving one another, because as you love one another, you're fulfilling your call of humanity. Mm-hmm. But that's our task. That's part of our ruling and reigning over the world. And so as you then hate your brother and you hate one another, you are not image bearers anymore. You are throwing that away. And, and Which gets us to Genesis 4. Oh, yeah, we're skipping ahead. Do you want to? Well, I was just going to say the end of 2 is that beautiful statement. Of, oh, yeah. You have this fellowship. Oh, yes. Sorry. Question. I, I think you're catching that, that the light that you see with your eyes, it's a very narrow spectrum of all the light that exists. And that is a part of what God absolutely created. Yeah, I think you're catching that. One of the things that comes out in Genesis that's a little hard to see in English is that, you know, God will, we say that the sun is a light, you know, in the sky. But that word is different. That, that's what's called a lamp. And so sometimes you'll see that what God creates are these lamps that produce this light, you know, that you can see. But there's something beyond that that's, that we can only speak of in metaphor. And that's where when, when we say God is light, we don't mean that he's contained to a visible light spectrum. We mean he is this condition <laughs> in which life and love and everything can exist. And so this is the hard part to get our head around is that idea that light is not a functional thing like that light bulb up there. It can also mean this condition in which things, can I just say, in which thing everything is exactly the way it should should be. So you're, you're actually exactly right that there there is kind of this, not double meaning, but this layered layered meaning. And we end up here, and this is what brings us to the end of Genesis 2, where you have this couple who are one in a garden and everything is right. In fact, the very last line of chapter 2 says that they were there in the garden. They were fully exposed, but they were unashamed. Did you catch? Have you seen that? Totally exposed and unashamed. And then it's in chapter 3 where things they go bad. Go bad. Yeah. Um, so chapter 3, you're introduced to this serpent. Uh, and interestingly, the serpent is not really depicted as evil. Um, he's told that he's cunning, uh, which has a lot of connotations to he was very wise. Um, and, but apparently he used his wisdom poorly. Uh, and f- for what his intentions were, uh, he wanted to decreate what God had just made. Uh, he wanted to destroy his good world. And so he tricks the woman. Um, and then you immediately see uh, the, the destruction of relationships. Um, so... And it's semi-implied that, you know, God is walking at the garden and he comes and finds them. And so you get, you get this idea that they've done this before because uh, they recognized his walking. They were familiar with it, and so they hid themselves. And so I think you're meant to sort of interpolate out of that that they'd walked with God before this day, before their fall, before their fail test. Um, they experienced God personally, uh, very deeply. They had fellowship with him, uh, which is what then First John's going to hit on. And so, but then as soon as this uh, deception enters the garden, um, they start hating each other almost instantly. 
Because God says, and, and God's, God's reaction to them is quite interesting as well because he doesn't just barge into the room and start condemning them. He asks them very personal questions. Um, he wants them to confess. He wants them to open up to him and relay what happened. But what do they do? They just start blaming each other. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And the serpent's got nowhere to go. So he just <laughs> kind of stands there and takes it. Um, but they just, they instantly don't have any regard for one another. Um, and also, as they, you know, you're, we're told their eyes are open. And, what's, and the first thing they feel is shame. They're shameful about what just happened to them. But not because they're, they're sorry about their current circumstances. But they have sort of this evil evil, wicked intent that I don't want you to see me like this, and so I want to hide myself from you because I don't trust you anymore because our relationship is ruined. Um, and then you get in, and then God will hit on this, and almost all the curses now, but for the serpent, for the woman, and for the man, the woman's curse, uh, depending on how you read it, um, I think a lot of interpretations you'll get that she's supposed to have pain in childbirth, but the original Hebrew words have more connotations to you will have difficulty getting pregnant because your relationships are ruined. Because you, you and your husband don't have love for one another, and so he's not going to want to give you um, a child. And then you see this played out in Genesis uh, with Abraham and Sarah and, and um, Haggai. What's her name? I already forgot. The serpent, the servant woman. Um, Hagar, yes, thank you. Um, and then you see it with Jacob um, and, and his wives, because he liked Rachel more than Leah. But God blessed Leah with children, um, because they had a fractured relationship. And then you also get this pronounced uh, broken relationship of human beings in general, because now you, get, you have the seed of the woman, and then you have the seed of the snake, and then we're told that these offsprings are going to fight one another. Yeah, and I was going to comment on that, too, that that's uh, the two, two big things to catch here. One is this battle that now is going to go on for the rest of time mm-hmm. and then that takes us to four where we get to see that battle first play out so uh, genesis two fifteen, where he says i will put this in in <laughs> it's hard to enmity. Say it. enmity between you and the woman and tracy this is to your point notice where it all started there's going to be this battle between your offspring talking to the serpent and her offspring or the word could be seed your seed and her seed he her seed is going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's just a hint. We're not told how that plays out, but that's the, the yeah, we're first... we're to look out for little snake babies. <laughs> um, but you see all through, and you saw this pop up in First John, where on display he shows... Actually, that's going to be a little more next week we'll get into, but it'll be, as Tracy said, this seems to be this battle between these two. And then chapter 4. And then chapter 4, uh, which... You know, John even mentions by name in his letter, uh, you get to Cain and Abel, and you see the struggle between brothers. And it's the first instance where um, sin is introduced into the biblical narrative, and it's personified. It has an essence, if you will. It has its own intent, and it's almost displayed, um, and I'm putting this together with Paul's notion of the lion, but you get this impression that it's this roaring lion in the dark, part of the darkness, uh, seeking to devour Cain, seeking to almost enter Cain, because he talks about a door. And then it's like, well, why would he enter him? And so you, then it starts, you know, immediately you just saw seed of the woman, seed of the snake, and now you're introduced to Cain and Abel, and you're supposed to map those together. Cain is, becomes the seed of the snake. Abel is the seed of the woman. And they're the very first instances where you start seeing how the descendants of good and the descendants of evil are going to start populating through the scriptures. 
And so, you know, John, I was, we were joking the other day, he talks about a new commandment I give you, but then he doesn't tell you what the commandment is. Um, and so I think he's hinting back on, you need to, you know, he's got a basis for all this in his head when he's thinking about it. And so when he talks about when you're a murderer, um, you know, you can't know, the, you can't know Jesus, you can't know how to follow in faith. And likewise, don't be like Cain because Cain's intentions were evil. His heart was evil. He hated his brother and he wanted sin to enter him. He wanted to be a descendant of the snake. And that's part of our warning that we've been told from the beginning. Don't hate your brother because when you do so, you become the wrong lineage. (laughs) Well, let's try to tie this all back together. I'm going to take you back here to 1 John. And and this really is just a, a way of reminding us that we are a part of humanity's struggle from the beginning of time. And you get to take part in this incredible conflict, but as children of God. And so coming back now to First John with this idea in mind of light and darkness and how because of them messing up in the garden, they're thrown out into, let's say, darkness. Now you see what would be on John's mind as he writes, and I'll just bring you to one small part of this, when he says, God is light, and walk in darkness, we lie. We're not part of the truth. You're outside the garden. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That's a natural effect of walking in his light. And then if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. and His word has no place in our lives or in us. And then he goes on to say, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. I'm not saying sin. I'm writing so you don't sin. But if we do, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And then we'll go, again, you, you've, we've read the passage, but notice where John takes us by the end of chapter 2 when he uh, says there at the end, the idea is that we abide in him. We'll talk about this more next week. But we abide in him, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears... Imagine being Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes somewhere. But John writes here and says, you abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink in shame at his coming. So I want you to imagine for just a minute, what is it like to live your life in such a way that when God appears, you can be right there before him totally exposed with everything you've ever done, everything that you are, totally exposed before God with absolutely no shame. Do you hear how John is taking Genesis 1 through 4 and he's, he's saying, let's look at this again in a new way in reverse. You are part of what God is doing to make the world right again so that you as people can live your life in such a way that you can stand before God when he appears Unashamed. Yeah. Now we always end by saying, "So what?" <laughs> That's, those are beautiful thoughts. Thank you, John, for displaying that for us. So what? How does that apply to us? What do you think? Um, I mean, I think most of us can relate to feeling shame. Um, I know I've certainly felt it in my life. Uh, so, to the notion of being able to stand before God unashamed is, uh, at times in the past, has felt unattainable. Um, but I think the more you spend time in Scripture, and at least in my own personal experience, uh, prayer has probably been the largest determining factor in removing uh, shame 
uh, and I like to think of uh, Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I associate that where there should not be shame. Uh, you should not be doused in guilt and shame all the time if you're, if you're practicing righteousness. And John even takes time to point that out. It's not that you are supposed to be righteous, that your every day is perfect, but that you keep trying. Um, and I think that's really the essence of at least what I pulled out of this is that you don't have to be the greatest Christian ever. Just try to keep walking in that way and God will help you and he'll support you. Um, and I think when you lay yourself bare before the Lord in prayer and you, and you honestly give him everything, uh, you know, don't try to do fancy devotional words, I guess, but whatever is really personable to you, the things that you are ashamed of, that you don't want to expose to the light, when you put those before the Lord, and I think saying it audibly has a much stronger impact than just thinking it, um, there's change that happens. Uh, there's release. There's this, this resolve of, of guiltiness, and it's, it's great. And now we have an opportunity to put that into practice as we prepare for worship and realizing that what we do in the next hour and worship in the light is really just a practice for how we will walk uh, the rest of the rest of this week. All right. We'll pick it up there next week. Thank you. Let's prepare for worship.